wish a good morning to the folks of Caw Prairie and to the folks of the Table KC and anyone else who may be joining. Um, good, to, good to be with you. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like this morning to, to first give you a commercial, and then share a few short pieces of scripture, then I want to tell you a story. So the commercial at the corner of 80th Street and Metcalf Avenue in downtown Overland Park is Homer's Coffee Shop. On Sunday evenings when Homer's closes, the table KC takes over and we worship. It's a missional community that uh, is unique in a couple ways. It never wants a building and it gives 50% of its uh, resources, its offerings back and blessing to the community. So a simple invitation, if on Sunday evenings, um, after you've worshipped at Caw Prairie, if God's not through with you yet, then we would welcome you at the table. Scripture. The theme for today is, as I, we're starting a greeting card series, um, taking a look at the events in our lives in a little deeper way, the kind of events that tie us together that we might send cards to one another to celebrate or commemorate. Um, when Dan asked me to participate in that, I thought immediately of, of a uh, get well card. And here's the scripture that came to mind. Two brief scripture readings. I'm going to read two psalms as I think the psalmist would have sung them. I'm not going to sing them, but uh, with a kind of intent or um, emotion. Be pleased, O God, Psalm 70, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire to hurt me. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. When I think of somebody in Scripture that is in need of spiritual wellness. This is the guy that comes to mind. Um, this psalmist is in pain. He, uh, he, 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 he's crying from the depths of his soul. Lord, help me. Help me. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit. Out of the miry bog, he, he drew me and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Here's a guy that's spiritually well, I think. This psalmist has a song in his heart, and all is well, for he has found the Lord trustworthy. So here's the question. How do we get to Psalm 40? How do we achieve spiritual wellness? All right? Now, a story. A story about spiritual wellness and transformation. It's my story, but I think that you're going to find a lot of it familiar. It's a story we share. It's different names, different places, different times, but I think the same story. And you probably already realized from my accent that my story probably didn't begin in the Midwest, and you'd be right. It began in a place where folks talk a little funny, North Carolina. It was in the 1960s and 70s in North Carolina that our family would pack up our white wood-paneled Chrysler station wagon every summer and head to Myrtle Beach. My brother, Peter, and I, 15... Uh, months apart, they still are, 15 months apart, come to think of it. Um, we appreciated as children, when the weather was nice, Dad would lash the luggage 
to the luggage rack up top and we would have the whole back end of the wagon to ourselves. Um, our parents loved us, that wasn't the deal. Uh, no seat belts, but we survived. It's just something you did in those days. But that space became our imagination space and we turned it into a, a, a gun turret on a B-52 bomber and we were able to stray all the enemy vehicles over the Pacific. Um, my older brother got the middle seat all to himself and much to our disdain, dad drove. Um, dad would sit in front, this fedora hat down over his brow, his aviator sunglasses on and uh, pipe hanging from his mouth. And uh, he was not exactly a speed demon, uh, let's say. So, and so it was that the drive from our farm in North Carolina to the beach was about four hours, five hours in, when dad was driving. And, um, and during that drive, um, we knew how long it took, but it didn't stop us from asking. And I don't know why we did, because dad's answer was always the same. How much further? Dad, how much further? 20 minutes, he would say. Um, Dad, you said 20 minutes 20 minutes ago. 20 minutes. And he would chuckle to himself. On one particular trip, my brother and I were probably three and four, four and five. Um, Pete, in the middle of our play, just said, there it goes. And he went back to playing. No one took much note of it then. A little while later, this occurred, you know, it occurred to Dad that this might be something he ought to check on. So he said, Peter, a little while ago when you said, there it goes, what were you talking about? There what goes? Without hesitating, Pete said, the luggage. Now, my father has never left black marks on any asphalt in his life except for that day. He screeched over and uh, jumped out of the, the wagon, and, and sure enough, his trucker's hitch knot had failed him, and every piece of luggage was gone. And Dad, exasperated, um, leaning against the back of the car, said, Peter, think hard. How, how far back was it that the luggage flew off? Peter said, 20 minutes. 20 minutes. I have this indelible image etched in my memory of my brother Mike dashing in and out of traffic, collecting our suitcases, and all of our laundry <laughs> strewn over a quarter mile of Route 9 in the sand hills of South Carolina. While Pete and I sat in the gunnery providing cover fire, right, and giggling. What I couldn't imagine in that day was how those images would um, persevere through the year, that they would still be so vivid uh, over a half century later, and how they had become tremendously important as a metaphor for my life. Um, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan friar, a popular spiritual guy. He says there are two major tasks in the human spiritual, spiritual journey. It, the task of the first half of life is to create the proper containers. Um, who am I? What makes me significant? How can I support myself? Who's going to make the journey with me? And then the second half of our spiritual life becomes simply filling those containers. Education, family, career. Well, my containers became those suitcases. Now, I was a pretty impressive packer. You know, it takes the average student in college about 5.1 years to get their, you know, their, their college degree packed. I did it in three. By the time I was 20, I had a BA in psychology, a minor in religion and philosophy, 
I would have been ordained by 24 if Pastor Chris hadn't, not your Pastor Chris, my Pastor Chris at the time, hadn't tackled me on the way out the door to seminary and said, and said slow down, son. But even after taking a year off, I graduated seminary at 25 and had a few more uh, bags packed. I was married. I had two beautiful children. Perfect family. Perfect family. My containers were built. My journey was... Was, res was It was underway, straight, smooth, and ever upward. It was perfect until it wasn't. Because somewhere along the way, it started to unravel, and the suitcases began to take flight. Some suddenly, some over time, they just let loose. Marriage, health, career, and each time one of the pieces set flight, I responded by doing exactly what I knew how to do, nothing more. I watched in the rearview mirror, I uh, winced, and I prayed some version of Psalm 70, Lord help me, Lord help me, and I just kept driving. It's painful to watch your life come apart. Some of my loss I had no control over, other parts of it I did, but regardless, it's a painful experience. But eventually, inevitably, there are consequences when you continue to drive and ignore your pain. If you do not find a holy place for your pain, then you'll eventually pass that pain along to someone else. If you do not find spiritual wellness, then those around you will begin to suffer as well. Pain that is not transformed that is not transformed is transferred. Pain that is not transformed is transferred. And not usually to our um, enemies either. It's usually to the ones we love the most. Standing on the shoulder of Highway 9, 1967, the decision to turn around and collect the luggage, it wasn't a very difficult decision for my father. I mean, why not? But all these years later, my decision to turn around and go process the losses in my life and try to make something holy of them wasn't so easy. I mean, it's not easy to admit you didn't have life tied down as tightly as you should have. And especially for pastors who are so public. I mean, we live in a glass house, and the folks that are watching don't particularly care for their pastor's luggage to be all scuffed up and for their laundry to be displayed for everyone to see. Um, so as long as I was in the parish, it was just easiest to keep driving. But when what I thought was the last suitcase let go, when I lost the ministry that I dearly loved, I finally made the decision to turn around. Only then. You know, those are Jesus' first public words, turn around. Metanoia in Greek. You would think that if we had... Uh, properly translated any of Jesus' words, it would be his first, but I'm not sure that's the case. Um, I, think we've, uh, I think we could have done better. We've translated metanoia as repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, I think a better translation of that is change. Change your heart. Change your mind. Turn around and see things from a different perspective. And Jesus had 30 years to think about his first words for his sermon, his first public proclamation, and so I think these are probably pretty important. But he's saying, um, the kingdom of heaven that I bring you, this, this um, 
kingdom that I embody is so different that if you do not change your mind and see it differently, if you change, don't change your heart, then you're going to miss it. And a lot of people didn't change their heart, and a lot of people missed it. So I turned around, and it was in that turning that I eventually found spiritual wellness and a new heart. Home Before Sunset is an accounting of that journey. And that's a story I want to tell you. Um, it's about 300 pages, so you better settle in. Uh, I'm, don't, don't turn it off. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, how about a few learnings from that journey? Just in case it's a journey that you're thinking about taking yourself. Um, so anyway, before we get too far, I think there's something that we need to make sure we've got established. I think we need to compare our maps and make sure that we're both on the right path. It may seem obvious, but one of the first learnings that, uh, that I gleaned from this experience was that you can't follow someone to a place they aren't going. In short, my route was straight, smooth, and ever upward. That was my path. It wasn't Jesus' path. He wasn't on that route. He never intended to be. I don't think he ever has been. Jesus is more of a uh, um, winding, bumpy, uh, ever downward sort of uh, guy. I mean, my office walls are full of um, certificates and diplomas and awards, not Jesus. Uh, I paid attention to the world's idea of success. Jesus redefined the world's understanding of success. He's much more of a gain-your-life-by-losing-it sort of savior, a um, cross-toting, love-your-enemies, wash-the-dirt-from-between-the-toes-of-your-disciples sort of Lord. He's the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Problem was, I had no intention of being last in line. My bags were packed, and they were checked to a destination that the world approved of, and uh, that was all right with me. And the place was, problem was, it was a place that Jesus had no intention of going. Well, if you want spiritual wellness, that's a concern. Metanoia. Somehow, I had managed to miss the heart of Jesus' first words. I thought you could be a Jesus follower and yet strike out on your own. Pretty tough to find spiritual wellness when you're on a different path. And the path that Jesus, um, the path that Jesus leads us down um, is a complicated path. I think as Pastor Chris shared a little bit last week, my take was, Life rarely gets simpler or easier once we become a Jesus follower. A few years ago, um, Lori woke in the middle of the night to discover that I was missing. I wasn't missing, I just wasn't in, in bed. She found me on the couch, curled up in the fetal position, um, murmuring and saying something like, uh, uh, I'll be all right in just a minute. Her response was, uh, which hospital do you want to go to? An hour later, I was at St. Luke's South uh, asking for medicine and, and looking at films of some pretty impressive kidney stones. Now at the time, I was right in the middle of writing a chapter uh, called The Gift of Suffering. And that pain was so excruciating and unrelenting that I really, I really thought about renaming the chapter or maybe nixing it altogether. But part of what makes my story our story is that at some point suffering finds all of us. It's inevitable. Even God 
will suffer. And I suspect that's something that we can agree upon. Um, but I might have a little more challenge convincing you of the next point, and that is that not all suffering is to be avoided, especially if you want spiritual wellness. Um, you might push back at that just a little bit with your heart, if not with your head. We spend a good portion of our lives trying to avoid pain, especially in Western culture, which is characterized by this relentless pursuit of comfort. You know, if we suddenly removed all the institutions and, uh, uh, and the industries that help anesthetize us from all things unpleasant, I think our economy would probably collapse. But at a fundamental level, pain is an essential part of the warning system that God has hardwired into our bodies and our spirits. It's a good thing you came in, the doctor told me. Um, those kidney stones, had they not caused you pain, they were set up to do some pretty significant, unrepairable damage to your kidneys. So here's the deal. As long as our plan for life is working, or at least appears to be working, we're not going to change course. I mean, why would we? Straight, smooth, and ever upward is just too much fun. And besides that, it's the path that the world um, honors, right, and rewards. And then there's Sir Isaac Newton's first law of motion. An object will remain at rest or in uniform motion in a straight line unless acted upon by an external force. We will not discover a new heart or new spiritual wellness or the fullness of grace that God intends if we maintain the world's course. It will take some sort of falling, some sort of failing, some suffering to take us off our course. I wish it weren't true. I wish there was another way. I would have arranged things differently if anyone had asked, but they didn't. It will take some sort of suffering. I want you to come back with me to Palm Sunday for a few minutes. Just a few weeks ago, I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. We're going to send a drone up over Jerusalem and take a look at what's happening from, from the drone's point of, uh, of view. Because from this vantage point, you can begin to see there are two processions forming on that day. Way off to the west, Pilate is leaving his home in Caesarea. He's not very happy about it. There are not many places he'd rather be less than Jerusalem in those days. But there are two, three million Jews there for Passover, and Jerusalem is a powder keg ready to go, and he's got to go maintain peace. And so his procession begins with 600 stallions and 600 armed soldiers and whatever someone needs for 600 stallions and soldiers to march 60 miles to the holy city. Off to the east, a very different procession is forming. Um, no stallions, a donkey, and a lot of peasants. Two different processions, two kingdoms. Off to the west, the imperial kingdom of the world. To the east, God's kingdom. And these two processions, these two kingdoms, are going to engage one another in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to make sure of that. He's picking a fight, a holy fight. But it's the people behind him I want you to see. Maybe you'll find yourself there, somewhere in this, in this scene. <clears throat> there are people with Jesus shouting Hosanna who used to be mute, who because of God are no longer mute. There are people dancing 
and running beside him who used to be lame. There's a man who had been born blind who can take in everything that's happening because he can see it now. And maybe most impressive of all is a person named Lazarus and the daughter of a man named Jairus who didn't used to be at all. I mean, they were dead, and here they are. Everyone here has a reason to follow Jesus. The problem is they're not following him to the destination he's going. These folks are following Jesus because they want more of whatever it is that he's given them, <clears throat> more miracles, more free food, or whatever parties at the end of this procession. I'm pretty sure, though, that they're not following him to the cross. <clears throat> These people are in as long as Jesus fills their needs. And the closer the procession gets to the cross, the more difficult it becomes to follow, the more people begin to peel off of the procession and it falls apart like luggage coming off the top of a Chrysler wagon. It just takes, they take flight. And those who had been dancing take their seats. And those who were blind look the other way. And those who have been shouting either say, crucify him or they become silent. And even the disciples, they follow, but they follow, Scripture says, at a distance where it's safe. So by the time we get to the cross and take roll call, there are only a few left. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Peter? No. Andrew? No. James? Bartholomew? No. They weren't there. They were at a distance. Some suffering is necessary to take us off our paths, the paths that we would otherwise travel. And in this case, that suffering belonged to Jesus. Even Jesus prayed Psalm 70, If it be your will, Lord, help me. And then, when the suffering was the greatest, Jesus spoke his last word. Last words are also important. To tell us die, he said. It is finished, which also means I have won. It is complete. No one knew what he meant, but somehow in that suffering, there was a victory. Tom Long is a preacher's preacher. Tom tells the story of a man named David Scorch. <clears throat> David had borrowed a book from the Brooklyn Public Library um, back in Advent uh, some years ago. It was a bounded score of Handel's Messiah. Uh, David was the director of a public community college and a group was putting on the production. And so um, he borrowed a book that was in high demand at that time of the year. The problem was there was a glitch at the circulation desk and the book was never recorded as being checked out. Um, so as demand increased for the book, the librarians gave this exhaustive search throughout the library. They turned it upside down. They searched through the stacks and after several days of searching, finally marked the book as missing. The day that David brought the book back, there was a young librarian at the circulation desk and a few folks scattered around at tables reading. Um, and when David set the book down in front of her and she saw what he had, her eyes widened and she forgot for, for a moment where she was. And she squealed in a loud voice, It's the Messiah! The Messiah is here! The Messiah is back! And everyone looked up. And what they saw was only a librarian holding a book. 
and they went back to reading. Tom believes this is a parable of sorts for the religious life of our culture. Preachers, he said, stand up each week and say, the Messiah is here. God is at hand, ready to save. Metanoia, turn around. But many of the people don't expect God to intervene, not in their ordinary lives. They don't expect that God's going to help their neighbors who are upside down on their mortgage. They don't expect that God's going to push their cancer cells back to where they came from or repair their broken marriages or save the teenager that's in trouble again or heal the political divide in the country. They're just looking for God to show up and do anything significant. But all they see is a preacher holding a book. On the other hand, for a moment, in that Brooklyn library, when the desk clerk announced the Messiah is here, the room was electric. For a moment, everyone was hopeful. There may have been a sense, even if a little sense, down deep in their hearts, these people, that, 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 that God might actually come. Um, an expectation that in our hour of need, God might still heal and save. I think we are closest to that in times of desperation. When all of our other resources and defenses are gone and stripped away, and we are standing there naked and vulnerable with only God to call on. And we cry out using the words of Psalm 70, Lord, help me, help me. Sometimes, most times, we find spiritual wellness in the midst of suffering. Sometimes, most times, the only way to get to Psalm 40, the joy that comes in trusting the Lord, is to go through Psalm 70. The only way to deepen your conviction that God cares about our lives is to have those lives tested. The only way to get to Easter is through Good Friday. The psalmist knew that. And if you read his, um, these psalms too quickly, you may have missed the fact that he pasted part of Psalm 70 right to the end of Psalm 40 because he knew, I think, that these two prayers exist side by side in our hearts. Some years ago, before I started recollecting my luggage and working on this, I was typing on my computer one morning, as I did most mornings, when I noticed that the letter A had gone missing from the screen. I went back, checked, letter A was working fine. I set to typing again and it disappeared. What I found was there was nothing wrong with my letter A. There was something happening with my little finger. It wasn't responding the way I wanted it to. It was sluggish, you see. Well, a little later that day, the sluggishness in that little finger began to migrate up this left arm. And over time, moved into the left foot. When I first discovered it, I was listening to, um, what was it, Paul Simon's um, you Can Call Me Al, right? A lot of good bongo drums in that song. I tried to play the air bongos, and it just, my hand wouldn't respond. Eventually, my foot, I couldn't play the air pedal drum either. It took two years with doctors <clears throat> before we finally um, came up with 
the discovery, the explanation. And Dr. K, you said uh, finally, Joe, I think, I think this may be Parkinson's. I knew it wasn't Parkinson's. I'd already ruled that out. I had ruled that out. And a few other doctors had doubted it as well along the way. But he said, take this medication, and if it works, we'll know that's what you have. It's the only thing this medicine will address. It's an odd thing to take medicine and to hope it doesn't work. That's what I did. And I prayed, Psalm 70, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. Don't let this medication work. And for, for a week and a half, it didn't. And then the final titration, so I went up to that final dosage, I took the pills, I prayed, and 20 minutes later, this awful, wonderful energy surged up my arm and it came back to life. And I went to the typewriter and began typing. And it, my fingers just flew. There was no denying what had happened and what this meant. And that my passions for cycling and hiking and all the things that I loved, life was about to change. Um, all these activities which require mobility is the very thing that Parkinson's robs from your body. Now, it probably doesn't appear to you that I have Parkinson's. Um, the medication's working for the moment, but it won't forever. You know, I feel it gaining on me. It's sneaking up the back stairs. Um, words are harder to pull up. Fatigue, insomnia. On the other hand, when the desk clerk in that Brooklyn library announced, it's the Messiah. The Messiah is here. She unleashed this um, excitement and electricity for just a moment in the room. Folks thought that it might be possible that the Lord had returned and was there to, to save and to heal. And I think that we're closest to that sense in times of desperation when our other resources and our defenses have been stripped away and we're standing naked and vulnerable with only God to, to call upon. In those times when we pray Psalm 70, Lord, help me, Lord, help me, Sometimes, I think most times, we find a spiritual wellness only in the midst of suffering. And sometimes, most times, the only way to get to Psalm 40 and the joy that comes in trusting the Lord is to go through Psalm 70. The only way to deepen our conviction that God cares about our lives is to have those lives tested. The only way to get to Easter is through Good Friday. The psalmist knew that. Those pieces of two different psalms that I read, if you look back, you'll see what the psalmist has done with them. He has taken Psalm 70 and pasted it to the end of Psalm 40 because he knew that these two types of prayers had to exist side by side in our hearts. Some years ago, while I was, uh, before I was working on this book, I was working on another project in my office one morning <clears throat> when I noticed on the screen that my letter A had gone missing. I checked it with my right hand and saw that nothing wrong with the letter A. But as I started typing again, it went missing again. Shortly, a few other letters started missing over here. And I discovered there was nothing wrong with the keyboard. It was my hand. This little finger wasn't responding the way I wanted it to. 
Um, and it's an odd thing to will your body to move and have it not obey. I was listening to background music at the time. It was um, Paul Simon and You Can Call Me Al. Some good bongo work in that. I was trying the air bongo with it, the music, and, and this, this hand just didn't want didn't to behave. Over time, that sluggishness moved up my arm and then down my leg and involved the whole left side of my body. We spent months, which turned into years, at doctors trying to, trying to determine what was, what was causing this. And finally, after nearly two years, someone at KU suggested, Joe, I think we may be looking at Parkinson's. Well, I knew we weren't dealing with Parkinson's. I'd already ruled that out. I had ruled that out. And a few other doctors had suggested that was not the case. But he said, take this medication, and if it works, we'll know, because that's the only thing this medication addresses. It's an odd thing to take medication and hope it doesn't work, but that's what I did. For two weeks, I took the medication. I prayed, Psalm 70, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. Don't let this work. And it didn't for two weeks. But finally, the last titration went up to the highest dose. I took the medication. I prayed. And about 20 minutes later, this surge of energy um, raced down the left side of my body. And my arm came alive. And this awful, wonderful feeling. And I went to the keyboard and typed as if Nothing were wrong. It was normal. I knew what this meant. My passions have been cycling and hiking and mountain climbing, all activities that, that require mobility, which is the very things that Parkinson's robs from your body. It might not appear to you that I have a disease. Um, the medication's working. For now, it won't forever. I feel the disease gaining on me. It's sneaking up the back stairs, and words are harder to pull up. Fatigue, insomnia, there's a little shaking from time to time. But despite everything that's happening to my body, and despite the limited mobility that's going to be a part of my future, my faith has deeper than it ever has been. And I feel spiritually well, largely because of this project and that journey and because of friends who are praying for me. They've sent cards and letters saying, we've heard, I'm sorry, we're praying for you, and that's great. But the card that brought me the most spiritual wellness that was most helpful was a card sent by Paul, St. Paul. He wrote, Power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes, most times, we find the greatest spiritual wellness in the midst of trial and suffering. I had a dream a while back when I was writing the book. I dreamt that I was riding atop... Oh, hmm. 
I had a dream one night while I was writing the book. I dreamt that I was riding atop a white wood paneled Chrysler station wagon at a high rate of speed. With one hand, I was holding on to the luggage rack. With the other hand, I had the handle of the last piece of luggage that had not yet taken flight. My knuckles were white on both, and I wasn't letting go of either. I didn't let go of... <clears throat> I had a dream a while back when I was writing the book. One night, I dreamt that I was riding atop a white wood-paneled Chrysler station wagon. With one hand, I was holding onto the luggage rack. With the other hand, I had the handle of the last piece of luggage that hadn't yet to take flight. And I wasn't letting go of either. Grass was tight around both, and I was not letting go. And I didn't. The suitcase was ripped from my hand. And as it disappeared, I remember feeling a sense of great relief. And I heard this voice from heaven, and it said, finally, finally, I have something to work with.